I was a good 20 years younger then, and still it was very, very challenging. One day I tried to wear gloves to keep my hands warm, and then I found out you don't wear gloves when you keep your hands in Anjali. And then I discovered that some of the nuns used to have a hot water bottle. So that when you meditate, you'd stick your hands under your robe and there'd just be nice little heat source. But the most helpful thing, aside from just the form itself, the schedule and sticking to it and everybody moving as a group, you couldn't have puja when you wanted. You couldn't go for morning chanting at 6.30 because you have felt like having a sleep. You'd have to come at 5, not 6.30. So community life is, is a real letting go of our getting things the way we want them. But if there was an argument, if two people had a falling out, and you didn't feel like showing up for something, you still had to go. If you were in a bad mood, you still had to go. If you had a stomachache, you still had to show up for the meal. You could eat a little bit, but you still had to come. And I remember once there was this difficult person in the community. There's always one. There's always someone. And it's, it's never the same one. And even if you took that person out of the community, somebody else would become difficult. That's just how the mind works. But there was this one nun that was having a bit of a hard time, and she was having a go at a few of the other nuns, so there was a lot of upset. And it so happened that she sat next to me in the lineup. So when we had our meal, I'd walk behind her, and then I'd always sit next to her. I remember this one day when there was a terrible outburst and people were all frazzled. There was a boo-ha-ha. <laughs> and people were upset, and they didn't want to come to the meal. They had to come. And so we bowed, and we got up and took the food in our bowls, came and sat down and bowed. And then we were doing the chanting, and then it was time to eat. And sometimes people would arrive late with the offerings, so there was some woman that came to the front of the line. The nuns all sat on one side and the monks on the other. She gave her pots to the monks, and then the pot came around to the head of our line, and it was going down the line, and this particular nun had to offer it to me. So she offered me the pot, and when you receive something from a person more senior to you, the correct thing to do is make anjali. So when she offered me the pot, I showed the gesture of respect to her, took the pot and put some in my bowl and then passed it down. And then we started eating after chanting a blessing. And I remember realizing that gesture, even though I didn't at that moment, I didn't have much respect for her. I really didn't. I was, I was upset as the others. And I was full of self-righteous, why is she being so stubborn and caught up in the personality. But it was so interesting how the form brought us back into doing things in this way that is, it forces you to be respectful. You didn't have a choice. I had to. If I, if I were to grab the pot from her and make a face, you just couldn't do that. 
even though we still hadn't calmed down from all the ruckus that was going on in the nun's side of the monastery, she was arguing the most. So my mind was full of opinions. But in that moment, that was the moment to drop everything and just be respectful and come back to the fact that she's in the grove and she's been practicing longer than me and we're all human beings. So I can come here and sit down and eat my meal next to her and show respect. And I felt such a wave of gratitude to the form that this is the Vinaya. The Vinaya is what burns up defilement. It's such a letting go when we can remember that this is what we have to do. Now, if I weren't in a monastic form, I probably wouldn't live with her. No, I wouldn't have her in my life. But the power of facing every day things we don't like, people we don't like, situations that are uncomfortable, and coming back to the very basics of what the Dhamma brings us together around, like offering and receiving offerings with gratitude, showing respect and showing kindness, even if we don't like each other, even if we have personal hurdles to cross, we can still sit down and eat a meal together quietly. Those moments are a chance for forgiveness. And if there isn't forgiveness, this, the whole life is not worth living. The whole meditation practice is lost. We, we don't get the meaning of it. When we're not able to come back to the table and share the very basic rudimentary things that keep this dharma wheel turning, not just on the outside, but inside our heart. So, sometimes people question, oh, why do you have to bother? What's all the bowing for? Why do you have to light candles? Why do you have to put flowers on the shrine? Why do you even have to have a shrine? Why bother chanting? What's the purpose of it? We could have a cynical attitude. But in the end, all these things that might look like they haven't got much of a purpose or a meaning, you could even say that about festivals, about putting up a Christmas tree or lighting lights, that it's, it's meaningless. But it could have a meaning if we bring it down to coming together with our loved ones, our friends, and sharing in the blessings of our life and doing the same old things in a new way, bringing something new to those moments, to those special moments that we, we mark them on the calendar, just like we do in monastic life. We, we do it a little more often because our commitment is that much more intense. Like every day we do this. Every day we have a celebration at breakfast, at puja in the morning, get up, sit in front of the shrine, bow. When I get up in the morning, I made a commitment years ago. When I get up, bow. Before I go to sleep, bow. When I get up, sit. If I can't meditate, at least reflect and try to contemplate and do some internal chanting. 
for a while I was doing a lot of very long chants every day. Whether I had time or not, I would make time to finish those chants every single day. And if I couldn't finish them when I was busy, then I would do them before I went to bed or when I was cleaning my little hut where I live. Just chant. Do my chanting. It's an internal thing. It's like cleaning out the bag of the vacuum cleaner. You keep vacuuming and you think, I'm picking up the cat hairs. But nothing happens. They're still there. It's because the vacuum cleaner bag, the canister, is dirty. So it's the same thing with when we eat, we sit down to eat a meal. If we're not mindful of what we're doing, if we're not bringing our minds to the table, then we can't even eat the food properly because we're eating it without attention. And these acts of chanting and bringing ourselves back to the Dhamma as a standard in one way or another, it's all upaya, it's all skillful means to remember to celebrate the present moment and to liberate us from our suffering, which is always caused by our opinions and our thoughts about the way we are or about the way someone else is. They have a power over us which these tools that we can learn and practice can disarm. It's like an internal disarmament. Governments don't want to disarm because they're so filled with fear. This world thrives on fear. But we don't have to thrive on fear. Because we can't thrive on fear. <laughs> we only get sick from it. So I found a tremendous value in learning how to sit down with somebody that you might feel negative about. Sit down together like when we come here all together and we sit in the silence, this is very symbolic, to sit in the silence. It's like surrendering all our personalities. When you go on a retreat, you don't even know who's there. You don't have to know who you're with. It's enough that whoever you are, you've left your whole life behind to come and sit in the silence whether it's for an hour, a day, ten days, or two months. You've given up all your idiosyncrasies to listen to the truth, which is greater than all of us. And no matter what's happened, we can always forgive each other. We all have that ego, and we need to Make the ego, make it go, make it go. And making it go is coming back through these upayas that we can use, whether it's the silence, like just not speaking, or eating a meal, sharing a meal together quietly, giving gifts, like the other night. It was so lovely the way the monks gave us this bell to help wake us up in the morning. (laughs) 
calling all hungry people to the monastery kitchen. So even if there's a brew half, now the brew, there's always going to be something brewing. Because we don't know what our weaknesses are. We don't know where we have to work unless there's somebody there to reflect that to us. I began to appreciate this nun. In fact, we became very good friends. I ended up defending her. Whatever we are blaming the other person for, that's in us. That's in us too. If we're angry at at somebody for doing something which is wrong, we might have every reason to be angry, but we don't have to approach them with anger. We can still approach them with understanding and tolerance and and a boundary, of course. Like, please, this is what you're doing and it's painful. Can we find another way, a better way? And even if we do get all excited and explode in front of each other, we don't have to explode in our minds in, in reaction to that. And even if we do, we don't have to let it get published. <laughs> and if we do <laughs> this was not my intention to bear my my worry or my anxiety with the world there could be things brewing and we can try to be light and laugh and forgive and we have to be very careful how we think at first that a long time to understand the importance of these kinds of structures and of having a commitment and following it. Sometimes when no one's here and we're tired, you know, it might not even feel like getting my bowl and going through all the ritual. We modify it a little bit. We don't go to such lengths, but people will still put the food in my bowl and we'll come and do a little chant and we still follow the ways the way that the Buddha set it up because without that structure and just like the precepts it's a protection when your mind is all over the place you still follow a certain form of doing things respectfully even if you're impatient or, or upset still keep those things going so that we don't completely it's like an anchor like a little ship in a great big sea it can always drop anchor and it helps to steady us through the blizzard maybe it's like a snowblower it takes the snow and blows it over there makes a little path for us we only need a tiny little path to get through the snow we don't need to clear the whole field. Or you can have snowshoes, you walk on top of it. But all of these things help us to get through the blizzards of the mind. And then the meditation practice, that's the most skillful tool of all. It's like a, a multi-valve on the propane tank. No matter what kind of situation is going on, contemplation and stillness in the mind always can serve us 
to see how ego drives the boat and how to come back to clearing the path so that we don't follow the hammer of the ego which wants to drive another nail into the coffin of our awakening. Because we can't wake up as long as we follow the habitual patterns of exploding and scattering ourselves into tiny pieces, fragmenting ourselves, going to the default position. It's not healthy. Yesterday we had a woman here, a wonderful supporter, she has a 13-year-old daughter who's anorexic. Her daughter was curious to know what we were going to do when we were silent, and I started to explain it. And I told her that we don't hear the voices that are driving us, the ego voice, but when we become silent, it gives us an opportunity to hear what drives the machinery of our mind. It gives us a chance to get a handle on it and to quieten that whole thing so that we can be more peaceful. I didn't know that she was actually suffering from this, there's a psychological term for it, which is eating disorder voice. And later her mother told me that she was so driven by this voice that she'd started to cut herself. I'm sure you've heard of this predicament that these kids are getting into. Maybe that eventually leads to suicidal tendencies. All of us have a kind of dietary disorder of the mind because we keep feeding on these poisons and we think they're healthy, these poisonous thoughts. We think that they really make us somehow smarter or they help us cope better with life situations. But in fact, they're toxic. And we cut ourselves by listening to those voices, the habitual voices of, I'm no good, or why can't you be nice to me? The crowd of echoes that is always driving us to solve problems by beating ourselves up or criticizing other people. That can start at a very young age with kids that suffer depression and angry at their parents, angry at the world. They manifest that anger by very self-destructive physical behavior. This Dhamma has the power to heal us deeply. And I'm very grateful that I'm going to have a chance for two months, three months, to do some intensive practice and go more to the stillness. So I want to wish you a very peaceful winter. Whatever is coming up in life for you, always go for refuge and reference to that which you can really trust that will liberate us from these unhealthy habits and behaviors. And it happens very slowly. It's incremental. It's not a sudden... Now I'm okay. It's a very slow process. We have to be patient with it. We so appreciate you being close by, and we will ring the bell (laughs) (laughs) if we get into some kind of emergency.